Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hi, I'm Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Today is all about natural gas and what we can expect as we look ahead to this winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Gas prices remain very elevated and security of supply is uncertain. Europe has been hit particularly hard by the reduced supply coming from Russia, And in all honesty, some demand reduction is going to be needed. While there may be enough gas to get through this upcoming winter, there's a lot to consider when we think about what might happen to the supply and demand balance in the months and years ahead. So today, I sit down with Stefan Ulrich and Aaron Tora, who are both European gas specialists at BNEF. And they're going to talk about our winter gas outlook. We do these twice a year, once for the summer and once for the winter. As a reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and our complete disclaimer can be found at the very end of the show. And now let's jump into the conversation with Stefan and Aaron and think about what might happen as we look forward to this winter and natural gas. Stefan, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Dana. Good to be here. And Aaron. Yep. Thank you, Dana. Happy to be here. So we are here to talk about... Well, the outlook for natural gas as we head into this winter in the Northern Hemisphere, and we do both a winter and a summer gas outlook every single year. And the both of you, we do these globally, but you guys focus specifically on the European part of this outlook. And this is really where I think the, I guess the crux of the attention is globally right now is on Europe specifically. So we will come to that and we will talk about those dynamics. But before we dive in there, Could you please provide some perspective on why, before the whole world was looking at gas prices, we were writing and researching winter and summer gas outlooks? So fundamentally, your gas year is split into two parts. Your winter, where you withdraw gas from storage, and your summer, where you put gas into storage. Most gas consumption is in in the northern hemisphere, so that works as a kind of like a global picture. So as a BNEF global gas research team, what we do is at the start of each of those seasons, the winter, so that starts from October, so in September, and the summer, so that's a forecast we produce in March for April, looking for the year ahead for those two seasons. In many ways, these are like our regular monthly publications we put out. So we have our global LNG outlook, we have the US Gas Monthly and the European Gas Monthly, but these are just where we really crunch some of the numbers in a bit more detail, sit together as a team and decide what the story is for the global gas markets over the coming 12 months. So the disruption specifically in Europe really took off this summer. 
even though the crunch time is really approaching us right now in the winter. So as we think about that, so Western Europe, what really happened was it lost almost all of its pipe supply from Russia. Can you really talk about why this is so important to the supply for Europe generally and what this does to the gas balance? So that pipe supply or Russian pipe supply makes up around a third of your total European gas supply. So it's a market which have lost a very large chunk, around 30% at the moment, of its total supply. And for a lot of commodities markets, that would be quite a hard shock to balance. Fundamentally, this is a story which has been building over time. Russian gas supplies didn't really flow to the levels expected in 2021 and have gradually decreased coming to the summer where you've only got a dribble, so around 10% of their historical levels remaining. So Russian gas was a third of the supply to Europe, but how about the rest of Russia's gas? Where else are they selling to and no longer supplying to Europe? Has that been problematic for them? Yeah, it's, it's been problematic for them. So the thing is about pipeline gas, those pipelines run to fixed locations. And so you can't really send that gas to other locations unless you have a pipeline heading from the same source to a different location, which when it comes to a lot of Russian gas production, that isn't currently. So a lot of that gas, which would be or historically has been sent to Europe, is now is now lost to the global market, which is why this then also this has a very big impact on your global gas balance. When it comes to regards to Russian sales, high prices had largely offset their lower sales volumes till around the summer of this year, when you've actually increasingly seen Russian gas revenues fall on a year-on-year basis. Of course, pipeline gas to Europe isn't the only gas Russia sells. It still has pipeline sales to China, which are ramping up. But it also, of course, sells LNG. Aaron, can you like quantify those sales and really highlight where they've been flowing? Yeah, thank you, Stefan. In particular, Russian LNG exports into Western Europe, so markets such as Spain, Netherlands, France, they've had, they have increasingly been importing higher volumes of LNG from Russia. Even countries that typically didn't import Russian LNG, so you're looking at countries such as Belgium, they are now increasing their appetite for Russian LNG, and this is primarily coming from the Yamal facility so it's quite interesting you know when we talk about the complete well not complete almost complete collapse of russian supply into western europe we're still importing quite a significant amount of lng and just quickly explain why this supply was shut off this was not due to sanctions imposed by europe on russia this was a decision made by russia proactively correct that depends on who you're talking to right but we wrote a piece back in september of 2021 called unpacking putin's statements right which was really looking at some of the we have to say, rather weak arguments Russia was using to justify why flows to Europe had not returned to previous highs and actually kept on falling. There is, of course, a debate about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and whether this reduction in flows could be viewed in retaliation to some of the political movements around that. And then, of course, though, since the war in Ukraine, Russian flows have fallen further and further as the excuses have mounted. Only one turbine was left operational on the Nord Stream pipeline with I think a total of seven turbines at that facility or the upstream facility being found with technical issues. That's really surprising for a company with the performance record and the operational record of Gazprom. Gazprom, of course, then used sanctions as a shield, claiming that they could not repair these turbines given sanctions. So, 
Of course, it depends on who you ask, but in a lot of our pieces, we've highlighted how weak some of the arguments have been that Gazprom and Russia have put forward. And the best example of that is how Gazprom still has available pipeline capacity through the Ukraine, which it is not using currently and has not been using for quite a few months now, despite now sending less than its contractual obligations to a lot of its European customers. Let's then think about what this reduction in supply to Europe has really done to gas prices, because we all acknowledge that, you know, gas is an important part of the energy system. It's an important part for heating, for homes. It's an important part for manufacturing. It really touches so, so many parts of the economy. And one of the primary reasons why people have said that it is linked to, in many respects, this high inflationary period that we're in right now. So what has been happening with Russian gas prices? Because I know that it is definitely more than gas traders that are keeping a close eye on gas prices at the moment. So the European gas market is largely liberalized, right? Your price is set by that marginal supply source. And with the decline in Russian gas, Europe has to import a lot more LNG, but specifically spot LNG. So liquefied natural gas coming to us from ships instead of through these pipelines historically in Europe. Exactly. But also, you know, a lot of your buyers globally who import LNG like that, they're signed up to these long term fixed price contracts, which are set generally as a proportion of the oil price. And so a lot more stable. What Europe has to do is capture an exorbitantly large share of the global spot market, right? So that's in competition with Asian buyers. I think, Aaron, do you want to add in there about just what pushes and just how that competition is unfolding and pushing both European and global LNG prices to these record high levels? So the situation Europe finds itself is the fact that it now needs to replace, as Stefan mentioned, a large proportion of its baseline or baseload gas supply. In order to offset this, they have to attract LNG, and that is via the global spot market. As Stefan mentioned, a large proportion of LNG volumes is tied under long-term agreements. That's around 70% of the total LNG supply. And how long is a long-term agreement? Anywhere between 15 and 25 years. There have been negotiations to bring in some shorter to medium-term contracts, 10 to 12 years, but they haven't really uh, gained much traction. And how much of the market is actually already tied up in these long-term agreements? So you've got 402 million metric tons of available LNG supply. 70% of that is locked up in long-term agreements. So Europe is now battling for that remaining 30% in which 70% of its own supply is all on the spot market. So it's incredible competition and it only takes a brief cold spell in markets such as China, Japan, and then we could see substantial amount of LNG being displaced to other markets. And that will have a big impact on how Europe restocks through the winter. In terms of prices, what Europe has had to do is had to maintain a premium over Asian LNG prices. That is the Japan-Korean marker. And then this constant competition to try and import spot LNG has meant that the TTF has had to be priced at a significant premium. And this kind of disrupts the forward curve as well, because although prices have fallen from its significant highs due to mild weather and the fact that Europe has restocked sufficiently through the first month of the gas winter, there's always that need to import LNG and that is going to keep prices high. We're in the first month of the gas winter. How closely are you guys watching the weather? Every morning. Yeah, very. It's it's a daily ritual for us. So it's been incredibly mild in Europe. And I think that's one factor, which is why our October demand to date. So we're recording this on the 26th of October. So through the 24th of October, demand has come in around 23% 
below your five-year average. But only half of that is due to the weather, or approximately half. I think it could even be a bit less. Your weather is incredibly important when it comes to your winter gas demand. I think your range in outcomes over the last 10 years is around 10 billion cubic meters either side, which is you know, around 15% of your storage capacity. And this has to do with the fact that so much gas is used for residential heat or, I guess, buildings generally? Exactly. So 35% of your winter gas demand is residential household heating at another 10-15% for commercial buildings, right? 50% of your winter load is gas is just for heating. And this is what makes your gas demand so seasonal. Your gas demand in peak winter is about four times higher than your gas demand in your low points of your summer, because when you get into December, January, right, you have that really big proportion of heating demand. So yeah, weather really impacts how the balance evolves and how demand and supply shape up. So in two scenarios, either a mild winter or a particularly cold winter, is there enough in the gas stores in Europe to make it through this winter? Yeah, I think we argue that that's definitely the case. Our latest forecast for European storage inventory evolution over the course of this winter suggests that European storages in the smaller smaller region of Europe we cover will be around 40% full. So that's around 30 billion cubic meters. And that is enough to absorb even the coldest of the last 30 winters or the remainder of the winter, because we're, we're now forecasting from November on pretty comfortably. So weather variation is important, but I think for us what's increasingly important is also your demand destruction variation, which the market is still incredibly uncertain about. So let's talk about demand destruction. The European Union has set a target for reducing gas demand. What is that and where did that come from? So as Aaron highlighted, there is not enough LNG to entirely replace Russian gas. You know, Even if we attract a really high proportion of this global spot share, you know, we can only replace around 60% really of the Russian gas volumes we usually got. That means that the market still has a lot of work to do to balance. Upside from other supply sources, especially now when you're increasingly thinking on a year-on-year basis, is really limited, right? So the demand side of the balance has to shift in order for us to have enough gas in storage. So yeah, that's why this policy was put in place. It was from that realization of the fact that without changing our gas consumption, we still forecast that we would run out of gas and storage in an average winter by the end of March. So can you elaborate a little bit on what demand destruction looks like? And is this come in the form of rationing? Does it come in the form of, you know, conservation? I'm even thinking a little bit about actually this summer and how there were many parts of the world that actually suffered from severe droughts. And there was a lot of discussion around water rationing. Maybe this is the same conversation around electricity use and home heat? Yeah, it's exactly that, right? So the worst case scenario, which is a scenario which our forecasts really think will avoid, is rationing where a government steps in and forcibly allocates a resource, right? But exactly as you point out, before you get to that stage, in many cases, you have campaigns to reduce consumption. You know, your classic UK summer hosepipe ban being the best example of that. So talking about this target of 15%, which the EU set, that's cross-sectoral, right? So it's 15% of our total gas consumption. When we think about the fact, as highlighted, that in the winter, almost 55% of your gas demand is used in buildings or so-called local distribution zone. That's smaller gas pipe networks, which feed commercial residential buildings. It becomes pretty apparent that we have to cut demand 
in that sector in order to meet these targets, right? We can't just let industry and power demand do all of the work there. So, you know, governments are balancing this really hard political question of protecting consumers from high prices and not wanting to pass on higher energy prices to consumers while still needing to encourage demand reduction and us all to be a bit more sensible with how we heat our homes and the energy we consume. I think that's a very important point that Stefan makes that governments must strike this fine balance because as soon as you start to intervene with stuff such as a price cap, you start to disrupt market dynamics in terms of letting the price do the work. So up to this point, high prices have allowed sufficient demand destruction to take place. But as soon as a gas price cap, as soon as that's implemented, you can start to see some of these things, let's say this demand destruction not playing out as we have seen. So for example, if we start to cap the price of gas and you know demand picks up elsewhere, do we lose that LNG supply that we were able to import because of the price of wholesale gas? Another point being the fact that if you cap the price of gas, such as what happened in Spain, you could actually increase demand in the power sector because you could start to see some incremental coal to gas switching once again. And when you start to play around with price mechanics, then you're not really letting the market do the work and the market should balance based off price. So I think it is a very fine balance on how much the government does intervene. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, there's the industry end of things, and then there is the individuals who, in some respects, you're seeing, you know, residential individual homes paying multiples of what they were paying last year, and not everyone can afford that. Is there discussion around keeping industry and individuals separate in terms of how this is implemented? I think it's worth coming back to, like, how pricing works for residential consumers and also for large parts of your industrial consumer base to understand that link with the wholesale market. Because I think that's also critical to understand why we went so high, but also why we're coming off now in terms of your prices. Gas demand for wholesale consumers is often set through a variety of tariff structures, which are not directly related to your wholesale price of gas, right? They're based on like an average price your wholesale importer has had to pay over 12 months, say, you know, there's often extra fees or subsidies, which mean that the price a wholesale consumer pays is generally quite lagged compared to your wholesale price movements. When we come to that really explains why it's really hard for the market to calibrate at the moment, because we've said that the market needs demand destruction, but a lot of the sectors where you had to reduce that demand only saw an increase in prices well after your wholesale prices had already gone up by multiples of 10 in a year, right? From the summer of 2020 to the summer of 2021. Now we're in a situation where your average wholesale price over the last year is probably 25, like 20 times roughly, let's say over the summer of 2020. And of course, Dana, as you rightly point out, no residential consumer or customer or small business can really deal with that 
So coming back to what governments now face, right? You're facing between balancing this book of where some of your importers and the people who supply downstream gas have to pay wholesale prices, which are up by multiples, you know, in the 10s, 20s, 30s, even higher. And residential gas consumers, of course, cannot pay that multiple. So yeah, there is a balance to be struck here. And many governments have put in price caps, you know, across the perimeter of countries we cover in Northwest Europe, including the UK, your average residential price is going to increase somewhere from 70% to 200% compared to 2015 levels over the course of this winter. So still a very substantial price increase. But for some consumers, that's, that's not the case, right? You know, we have a lot of chat in the London office that for some of us here, because we might live in a well-insulated new building block, our energy prices are actually going to be going down this winter, which is really comes back to how difficult some of these policy decisions are and how they need to really keep a very close eye and on that link between what's happening on your residential consumer side and how that affects your wholesale price evolution. So there's getting through this winter, which is definitely front of mind. But fundamentally, unless something changes, we're going to be in the same situation next winter as well. So then this brings me to this question around as we look forward and as we look at a lot of you know net zero targets that many companies and countries have out to 2050, there was a lot of discussion about actually phasing out natural gas at some point and building enough of various other forms of capacity in order to at least dramatically reduce the dependence upon this flexible capacity, which in many respects has been supporting wind and solar. Do you see the conversation right now moving towards installing more renewables in order to create domestic supply? Or the other thing that we're also seeing, which is, and you already referenced this, you know, switching between coal and gas and this almost coal renaissance and also this discussion now that's re-emerging around nuclear and things that provide baseload energy. I think it helps me to think about this by splitting those things into three different baskets. I think given how quickly Russian flows have declined in the short term, we really need some of this emergency demand destruction. For the medium term, so for me, that kind of means up to 2030 now, I think to see how Europe's approaching and thinking about this, or at least hoping to do this, the document that and the policy that needs to be looked at is the European Commission's Repower EU plan. So this was a plan released in March of 2022 in response to the Russian invasion. And it was supposed to change European energy consumption so that we would be rid of our reliance on Russian natural gas by 2027. When I like talk about this plan, I use the phrase really like turbocharging the energy transition the bulk of demand reduction and the bulk of what offsets this lost Russian supply is electrification, insulation, switching to hydrogen. It's, it's around 75% of the targeted demand reduction, right? So a 30% reduction in our European gas consumption by 2030. However, it's important to highlight that that plan also included two things which I grouped into a bucket which I called of kind of have referred to previously as compromises which includes measures such as potentially extending the life of some coal plants re-evaluating some of the decisions we've made on nuclear as you point out Dana which will be needed realistically by 2030 and the fundamental reason for that is that 
some of these decarbonization measures such as hydrogen development you know won't take place before 2027 in substantial quantities and then the third bucket which becomes even more critical and absolutely necessary given how quickly russian flows have fallen is outright demand destruction and reduction of consumption right so the european commission admitted that high prices and outlook for sustained high prices would have caused some demand reduction but it was only really in the region of around 20, 25 billion cubic meters, if I remember correctly. You know, I think this year we're looking at our forecast of being around 60 billion cubic meters. Yeah, for, for Repower EU and, and the European Commission medium term plan, it's, it's very heavy on that decarbonization piece, which tied into the long term strategy, right? It tied into the long term strategy of decarbonization. And a lot of these policies are actually only acceleration of things which were already discussed and fit for 55, which was the European Union's checkpoint to net zero. So we've seen prices quite high recently, and then they halved since we first made our outlook for this winter period. What is the medium term outlook for prices in Europe? And what do we think is going to happen among all of this volatility? So if we look at the wholesale natural gas benchmark in Europe, this is the TTF. If we look at the forward curve out until about 2025, we can see elevated prices persisting. And this is predominantly due to the fact that, as we mentioned earlier on, that it needs to replace a lot of this Russian gas with expensive LNG. Expensive LNG due to the fact that it's procured on the spot market and it needs to outcompete other buyers on a global basis. Structurally, we don't really see a large increase in liquefaction capacity until Qatar's mega expansion comes online. This is around 2025. This will add another 72.5 million tonnes per annum. So this is a huge boost in LNG supply, but there's a long way to get there. So in the meantime, Europe has to import a lot of LNG from North America. US supply into Western Europe typically accounts for around 35 to 40% of Europe's overall LNG share. And outside of this, they're procuring LNG from Qatar and Algeria. The only difficult thing is the fact that, as Stefan mentioned in regards to Europe's decarbonization strategy, despite Europe you know, building out LNG import capacity, they are still reluctant to sign long-term agreements. This is because for them, signing long-term agreements kind of signals to the rest of the world that, you know, we're still pinned to gas and we're not really decarbonizing as we intended to, let's say. This year, for example, um, Western European markets that we cover in our perimeter, we're going to lose around 8.5 million tonnes of LNG from long-term contracts expiring. This then further exposes us to the spot market once again. And then the US, again, will look to deliver volumes into, into Europe. So the US is a major beneficiary of high global gas prices because they also source markets in Asia. But when Asian demand lowers, as we've seen this year, they kind of just shift their supply into Europe. But then once again, it all depends on, you know, it's this constant battle that will have to take place over the next two seasons. Well, we're talking a lot about battles for end consumers in terms of pricing and then policies that are being passed along. But really, the willingness to pay these higher prices at a country level comes down to some wealthier and potentially less wealthy nations. How is that emerging? And are there countries that are essentially being forced out of the market? Yes, certainly. I mean, some of the emerging markets in Asia, such as Pakistan and Bangladesh, they're unable to procure LNG at prices north of $35 per MMBTU. 
what this does is the fact that this strains their power supply margins and they've had to implement rolling blackouts. Even countries such as India, which, you know, has seen to be climbing the global scales in terms of economic powerhouses, they are even struggling to procure LNG at sufficient rates at these high prices. So, you know, when Europe is importing such high volumes of LNG, they're actually taking away supply from these other markets as well. So it's not just a European energy crisis, it really is a global supply crisis. Yeah, I think as Aaron pointed out earlier, right, this is not just a theme for the short term, it also continues into the medium term. I think there's a great chart from our medium term LNG outlook, which compares our forecast for 2025 year on year, so from the previous year to this year. And you can see that South Asian LNG flows, I think it declined by 22 million tonnes in our scenario, right? So that's quite a lot of gas, which we now expect not to be flowing to South Asia in 2025, fundamentally because Europe needs that gas and will probably outbid for it. So not even in the sh- not just in the short term, but in the medium term, you're seeing this really have ripple effects on energy policy globally. So you had already referenced that there are new LNG production facilities that are potentially going to be coming online parts of the Middle East in 2025. But between now and then, there are existing exporters like the United States. Do you see any movement in terms of increased supply in order to meet all of this global demand? I think this is the fundamental reason for why we expect LNG prices to remain elevated and why we expect this competition for LNG on the global scale to to remain hot is the fundamental fact that supply additions between now and then are rather limited. So between now and then, the global LNG market isn't really going to get a lot looser unless buyers manage or other buyers. So you're looking at places like Japan and Korea and potentially some more price sensitive markets start consuming and demanding a lot less LNG. Additional point to flag here is that in our medium term outlook, we highlight a low case scenario for 2025-26, which takes a lot of the Russian projects, which was your second biggest source of LNG capacity additions out of our balances. So again, this is an issue with sanctions and project partners not wanting to get involved in Russian upstream gas projects. Returning a bit more short term, this is a real fundamental problem for Europe is that apart from LNG, there is very limited short-term supply upside. And we've used a lot of that already when it comes to thinking about Norwegian flows increasing slightly because they're reducing some of their oil production to push out more gas. I guess the one source of supply close to home which is starting to produce more gas again is North Africa. You've seen some contracts, especially with Italian developers, developing new production in North Africa. And you've really seen a big tick up in flows from North Africa to Europe. But again, those are those are pretty marginal volumes when it comes to the overall picture of things. So this is another reason why I think a lot of people are focusing on the demand rather than the supply side of, of the equation. So we've talked about the willingness or maybe put better, the ability to pay of wealthier nations versus developing nations in terms of this really high gas price that we're experiencing in the moment, as well as individual retail consumers. But what industries, and I'm thinking of you know different manufacturing industries that are very dependent upon natural gas for their production, what industries are under the most strain? You're completely right, Dana. And as you kind of pointed to, it's the most energy intensive industries. Particularly, I think your fertilizer production, which relies on gas, not just for its energy consumption, but also as a feedstock. You've really seen substantial cuts to European production in that space, but also chemicals production more generally. 
other industries, steel, given the link with power prices, aluminium producers are really under threat in Europe. And realization of this is really causing governments to take energy prices for industrials more seriously because they realize that this could really have long-term implications for the industrial future and the industrial development of Europe if they don't step in and help support industries through this difficult period. So let's fast forward not that far into the future. You'd reference that the gas year is split in two. You've got winter and summer. We arrive at summer. What things are you watching? Summer, in large ways, is just a repeat of the winter, right? It's about replacing Russian gas. But what makes this more difficult is that a lot of your upsides year on year have already been utilized, right? So you're losing Russian gas, but you've already pressed a lot of the levers that you have to replace that gas. So this really drives an opinion in the market that, you know, 2023, 2024 could be the real test. And this winter, where we actually had significant volumes of Russian gas to help refill European storages, is a bit less challenging. I think for us, when we look at it, fundamentally because demand is lower in the summer it comes down to the variation we potentially see in the global lng market you're completely right there stefan and just looking at asian demand and how that recovers that could significantly displace a lot of spot lng volumes that you know we really need during the summer for the injection period so just keeping an eye globally and how the demand picture from the lng side develops it's about that composition again isn't it aaron like you know yep. our base case forecast is for europe to roughly pull 70 percent of your global spot supply but you know that relies on it outbidding asia for these volumes if it chooses not to if it chooses is, is a weird word to use for a market <laughs> but you yep. know should TTF prices or European LNG prices fall below those JKM levels, then, you know, you could see greater proportions of that supply heading to Asia, really taking away the gas we need to inject into storage this summer. So I've been living in the UK for a long time now, and I think one of the cliches about the UK is that people are really obsessed with the weather. It's a lot of conversation about whether or not the sun is shining or it's raining and what the temperature is. And I think that this plays well on the British obsession with the weather. We will be probably all checking now every morning after listening to this podcast, seeing what's in store this next winter. Stefan, Aaron, thank you very much for joining us today and talking to us about the winter gas outlook and what we need to be considering as we think about prices and policy and you know really what's happening in global gas markets. Thanks a lot, Dana. Cheers, Dana. Thank you. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.